Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome to Hour 2 of Mornings with Carmen. Uh, You can grab this podcast later today and share it with somebody else by going to MyFaithRadio.com. Tons of great stuff there um, on the website. And just want to let you know that for the rest of the days of this week, we are going to be uh, doing what we call Spring Share, an opportunity for us to share with you the things that God has done in and through the ministry, the things that we uh, believe God has planned for us ahead and how you can engage in the ministry if you're not already doing so. Um, So I want to lead off. uh, This is a little, um, I'm trying this out this morning so that I can decide whether or not to repeat it later in the week. So here we go. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? I don't know the rest of that, but that's the, what I want to key off of here for just a moment. Um, do you remember when Mary, this gets to the text that we read yesterday on Easter Sunday, remember when Mary presumed that the man that she saw on that first Easter morning was the gardener? Have you ever, like, paused to think about that? The risen Christ looked like a gardener to one of the people who knew him best in all the world. Have you ever just paused to think about that? Jesus looked like a gardener. He could be mistaken for a gardener. So as we till the soil of life, whatever it is that we're planting and tending and cultivating through our labors today, do we acknowledge that God is ultimately the one who makes our garden grow? You know, you feeling contrary today um, about the patch where God has set you to labor or the labor to which he has put your hand today? You know, we are instruments in God's hand. I want to be an instrument that he uses to his glory, no matter what the task is set before me. So I don't want to be a Mary Mary quite contrary. I want to be uh, a Carmen Carmen quite content, uh, acknowledging that God is the one who gives the growth. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that he planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So there's a um, there's a product called miracle Grow. You might be familiar with it. It makes me smile every single time I hear it advertised or see it on the shelf. Um, the whole idea that something that I could pour into the soil or or turn into um, a pot um, is going to create a miracle and make something miraculously grow. If you think about what a miracle is, then it's ludicrous to imagine that what we're talking about there is miracle grow. And yet we use the term, we use the phrase, we use the product a lot. So the only time that's true, that miracle growth happens, is when God is the one doing it. When what is being turned into our life or poured out over us is the one who gave his life for our redemption. So this spring, as we till and plant and water and tend the gardens of life, I want us to labor alongside the gardener, And give him all the glory for the miracle of the good soil of our hearts, 
tilled by his hand, planted with the seed of his word, tended by his spirit, washed and sustained by his living water, stretching toward the radiance of his glory, growing up in every way into Christ, indeed producing a harvest of righteousness to his glory. Miracle grow, indeed. Dan DeWitt is up next. He and I are going to talk about the Weekend Worldview Reader Easter edition, and we're going to talk about, um, hey, here's the church, there's the steeple, where's the people? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dan DeWitt. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also easily find him at theolatte.com. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Good to be back. Yeah. So this is, um, uh, we missed having our conversation on Friday because it was Good Friday. And so we're going to do the Weekend Worldview Reader Easter edition on Easter Monday. So let's start with this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just, you know, I just revel in that. I glory in that. We're Easter people. Yeah. Um, so when I uh, when I open the Weekend Worldview Reader Easter edition at Theolatte.com, the first thing that I am greeted by is, here's the church. Where's the people? Tell people what's going on here. Yeah, so it's as everyone's picked up on over the last, you know, several days, the Gallup, the Gallup organization released a study on Monday, so a week ago, that really is noting a um, highlight or a low a low level, actually, as it were, um, in terms of p- how people affiliate with their churches. So for the first time in the history of their surveys, which they've done since the mid-1930s when George Gallup first founded his organization, for the first time in their history, church membership in North America has dropped below 50 percent. And so people are asking, why is that the case? Um, In some ways, the importance of this news is overstated because this decline has been steady for the last several years. And so I just wanted to write a reflection on why do we think this is happening? What should Christians make of it? And what should this say about our path forward in terms of what the church looks like in terms of biblical fidelity in the North America context? Well, and so what do you surmise about that? What does it say? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because from, I think, 1937 was the first year that they began asking the membership question, you know, are you a member of a church, a mosque, or a synagogue? Um, and that number stayed around in the 70 percentile. I mean, its highest point was right after World War II, I think around 76 percent. And then it stayed strong for 60 years, for six decades, and only started to decline at the turn of the 21st century. And if you remember, after 9-11, there was an initial spike in church attendance that, you know, that kind of um, disseminated, you know, it it kind of the—it went back down. That's what I'm trying to say. I've not had enough coffee yet, Carmen. Um, It went back down (laughs) pretty—it went back down pretty quickly. Um, But if you remember what happened, you know, in the uh, wake of 9-11 was the new atheism. And so you had Mm -hmm. a really strong secular um, campaign that lasted for several years. It's lost a lot of steam in recent years. You don't hear much from those guys. But I think that's one factor is the secularization. 
I, I would add, just to give a few more ization terms, secularization, liberalization. We know that mainline denominations that have moved away from biblical authority simply don't grow, and for good reason. Um, they don't believe the authority source for their faith, and they don't evangelize. So secularization, liberalization, and then I would add to that um, commercialization. I think if people, if their experience with church is kind of a drive-through, depersonalized, though highly branded and glossy experience, at some point that rings kind of hollow. They can have those kind of experiences elsewhere. And so I think commercialization plays into it. And then finally, in recent years, politicization. Um, I think that the tying um, our religious convictions to a political party has hurt us. And so I think that those are some of the factors that, for me, I think help explain what we're seeing in terms of the Gallup, the Gallup study in recent days. So um, I'll add one Asian to your, um, to your list. There are probably several we could add as I say that. But let's mm. add disintermediation, where people think that they don't need the body. They don't need the church. They can just do it on their own. They don't really need mm-hmm. um, to connect themselves or be connected to the vitality of a local congregation. Now, that is not true. Um, you can't actually be one body part without the body, and you can't love Christ without loving the bride of Christ. Um, and so I think those are um, conversation points that we could have as well um, with people who have given up on yeah. participation in the church, but who claim to be Christians, because I think that's a category of uh, of conversation that's important to have as well. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't read the New Testament without seeing that the church is a really big deal. I mean, the vast majority Absolutely. of the New Testament are epistles. They're letters to churches. All right, Dan DeWitt and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to talk about the first Christian creed. What does it mean to believe, and what does it mean to claim a certainty of a certain faith? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the Continue my conversation with Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. We're talking about this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, which is the Easter edition, so you can grab it at theolatte.com. Dan, let's talk about um, the first Christian creed. Yeah, the I, I love this, and I, when I share this with my students, I, I tend to get a bit animated just because it's, it really is exciting to think about. the In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul Um, uses a literary device to signal to his audience that he's including a quotation. He's properly sourcing something that he's been given. And that literary device, this rabbinical kind of formulation is, for I delivered to you, so you have the delivered, as of first importance, what I also received. And the coupling of those two together, delivered and received, is essentially kind of a first century quotation um, reference. So we know that what he's about to give us is something that he has been given himself, and that is the first creed in the Christian church. So Paul goes on to write that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then the creed goes on to include some of the early eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. 
this creed has surprising support even from non-believing scholars. So you have people like Robert Funk, who has a great last name to start with, Hmm. um, but Hmm. then is the uh, the founder of the Jesus Seminar, which is not you know a youth camp experience, but rather a very secular attempt to remove from the New Testament the supernatural claims and get at what they believe is truly historical. So you have Robert Funk, you have Gerda Ludemann, who is a atheist scholar, and a number of others, Michael Goulder, the list goes on and on, of non-believing scholars who say that this creed that Paul delivers in 1 Corinthians 15 was developed at the latest— two to three years after the resurrection. In short, these are the words that were on the lips of the first disciples after the first Easter Sunday. When uh, when we think about um, creeds, you know, I think about something that would start with uh, the words, I believe. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, there's there's a song, right, that, that like rises in, into our minds. Um, for those of us who grew up in churches, um, where maybe the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, you know, was something that we stood and all said together. I'm reminded, mm-hmm. Dan, every time we talk about creeds, I'm reminded, again, this gets back to our prior conversation about the importance of the gathered community of people that we would call the church, the ecclesia. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when my belief might be shaken, but when I stand with others in the believing community, um, you know, and we acknowledge together what we believe, that which was delivered as of first importance by the apostles mm-hmm. themselves, um, it, there, is a, there is a strengthening of one another by, by the fact that there are people of faith standing around me, even when my faith falters. Without a doubt. And again, that's a theme in the New Testament as well. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul, I think of um, how in Colossians, Paul talks about essentially praying for these young believers, and he prays that they could be encouraged, that their hearts would be united in love, so that they would not be, um, their faith would not be diluted by plausible arguments. And so the word, that word plausible, of course, gets used today, even in terms of what you're talking about, these kind of communal experiences and belief systems as it relates to plausibility structures. And Paul's saying, look, I want you to be in community with one another centered on the gospel so that when you are removed from the church context into a broader secular context or other religions, and those things begin to seem plausible to you, it's your unity together in the gospel that is going to serve as your source of encouragement. And I I like to tell church leaders when I have the opportunity to to teach on these things that the best apologetic is a faith community that is unified, centered on the gospel, and filled with joy. That that is the kind of apologetic that could stand up to the most secular of of arguments that would come against our faith. Um, All right, breaking my own rule, asking a question that I don't know the answer to in advance. Um, uh, did you watch the um, first episode of the second season of The Chosen last night by any chance with a hundred million not. other of us who did? Okay. Um, then I won't. Uh, no, it's okay. I won't. I won't shame you. Um, so there are some people who um, whose life and whose religious upbringing sort of put them on a direct path, a direct course to believing in Jesus, you know, and they just sort of walk right into it, and there's not a lot of drama. And then there's other people who, man, their route to get there is very circuitous. It's up and down. It's 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 round and round. 
Um, talk with us about this other piece that you have posted at theolatte.com. Three reasons I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, because it starts off with a with a guy who didn't get here by like a straight path. Yeah, um, I have the opportunity to speak for Crew um, Campus Crusade, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, at a university in Columbus, Ohio, on on Thursday um, of last week. And um, actually, no, it was earlier than that, but last week. And I wanted to talk about the resurrection in a way that people who, like you said, haven't grown up around the influence of Christian parents or a church could think about it. And I begin with the story of Peter Hitchens, who is the brother of famed atheist, the late journalist Christopher Hitchens. And I love Peter's book, The Rage Against Faith, How Atheism Led Me to Faith, or The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. And Peter Hitchens describes really how his conversion back towards faith, he became an atheist around the same time as his brother, who's better known um, in terms of his his atheism. Um, his journey back to faith began in an art gallery. He was standing in front of a painting depicting the final judgment, and that picture, the people in the painting who were fleeing the presence of God were not wearing clothes. And Peter talks about how it wasn't the artistic nudity that affected him, but the fact that they didn't have clothes on allowed him to identify with them. There was no kind of time stamp, you know, that they're from this period or that period. And standing there in front of that painting, he had a deep sense that he would stand before God. And so that led him on this journey of reconsidering his ultimate commitments. Um, so I use Peter's story as a way of inviting people to reconsider the resurrection. The three reasons I give, and I'll just state them and then see however much time or where you want to go with it, but I talk about historical reasons, and they're indeed really good historical reasons. We just, even with that creed, it has good support outside of Bible-believing Christians from atheists like Gerd Ludemann that it was a, a belief that was formulated very early on by Christians. Belief in the resurrection is not a late development, it's a very early development. The other two reasons I talked about with the students last week was that I believe in the resurrection for sociological reasons, that belief in the resurrected Son of God has led to um, the formation of universities, the establishment of hospitals, um, humanitarian efforts, all kinds of things that I think are reflective of um, the lifestyle of Jesus. Of course, there's people who live very contrary to Jesus and claim to be Christian. That's easily enough identified. We know how Jesus lived. We know what he taught. We could say that they're doing the opposite. The third reason that I argue that I believe in the resurrection is for existential reasons. The resurrection gives meaning to a universe that would either would, would um, be a meaningless accident. None of us live as though it's a meaningless accident. We live as though immaterial values like justice and friendship and poetry and beauty and purpose are all real things and have real meaning, and the resurrection makes sense of that in a way that other ways of accounting for the world don't. You guys can read more at theolatte.com. Um, I will add uh, to this conversation just one quote, and it's by Chuck Colson, and it was sort of the reason that he gave for believing uh, in the fact of the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Mm. Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
Watergate mm. embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Hmm. So we're going to add human nature. We're going to add human nature to your list of why I believe in the resurrection. Hey, Dan DeWitt, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. It's a joy. We'll be right back. Are you a gospel-bound Christian? What does it mean to be gospel-bound? What does a gospel-bound life look like? Colin Hansen's brand new book is Gospel Bound. Uh, We are going to talk with him up next. Can you live without sin for one day? No. How about one hour? Can you do it? No. Nor can I. This is Max Licato. And if we can't live without sin, we have a problem. Proverbs 10:16 says, "We're evil, and evil people are paid with punishment." What can we do? We'll observe what Jesus does with our filth. He carries it to the cross. God speaks to Isaiah in chapter 50, verse 6. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. You see, mingled with his blood and sweat was the essence of our sin. Angels were a prayer away. Couldn't they have taken the spittle away? They could have. But Jesus never commanded them to. The one who chose the nails also chose the saliva. Why? Well, the sinless one took on the face of a sinner so that we sinners could take on the face of a saint. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Colin Hansen. You know him as the vice president of content, editor-in-chief of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, If you don't, then you should. Um, He has been serving there for the last decade, uh, overseeing their content, books, conferences, articles, podcasts, on and on. So you're already, if you're familiar with Colin, you're familiar um, with the Gospel Bound podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the book, Gospel Bound, which he co-wrote with Sarah uh, Zylstra, who has been here on the program as well. Colin, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Carmen. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Let's uh, let's start with this. What does it mean to be a gospel-bound Christian? Well, to be a gospel-bound Christian is to know that in order to move together, move forward together, we have to get back to the gospel. I love this concept of gospel-bound because— it pulls together two things that seem to be the opposite. One of them is that we have to get back. Like bound means you're tied to. It means that if there's a hurricane raging, a tornado raging, you are bound to something that's going to hold you. It doesn't matter what's happening, how scary it gets. You're not, you're, you can't be shaken. But then second, bound comes with it this connotation of leaping forward, heading forward. And there's a sense of hopefulness as well. And Sarah and I, as we wrote this book, we began to see Christians all around the world who combined that sense that they were bound to the gospel during this time of incredible upheaval, but they were bounding forward in hope. They were really encouraged, and we just were so encouraged by them that we wanted to tell their stories, and we call them gospel-bound Christians. 
So that's really what the book is. Um, describe that to people because I think that that is going to whet their appetite to read it. It 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 is it's just excellent. It's not um, this is not like instruction in you know sort of the one two three four of how to be how to live. These are examples of other Christians who are gospel bound that are quite inspiring. Yeah. So what we did is look through the the book of Romans in particular, and so much amazing gospel theology in the book of Romans. And all of a sudden we began to see different themes emerge of what it would look like for us to live in these anxious times. We began to see just basic stuff, Carmen. I mean, things that your listeners, people generally know about, stuff like, okay, well, we're supposed to suffer with joy. Okay. We, we live with honor. We embrace the future. We're, we care for the weak, all these kinds of things. But you're exactly right. The thing that really stood out to us, and both of us are journalists, is the opportunity to tell people stories, to give examples of people who do all of these different things, who put them into practice. So really for us, it was trying to give people an example of a morale boost in one sense of, man, it can be so discouraging to hear, especially about what's reported about Christian leaders and Christians in the news. It can just be really, really discouraging. So we need a morale boost to know that that's not the full story. But then we also do need some some models, not a how-to, like you were talking about there, Carmen, but you know, but some models are just people who inspire us and say, I think I can do that too. The same Holy Spirit's at work in my life, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in my life as well. I'm united to Christ in my my church, my family, my community, and we could see this happen, you know, in where, where I live as well. So as gospel-bound Christians, there are um, there are a number of evidences in in our lives that could direct other people to the one to whom we're tied. I think that is part of what you guys are trying to do, right? Like, what are the evidences in a Christian's life that I am bound to the truth of who Christ is, and that makes it possible for me to then bound forward um, in ways that would surprise other people, because it seems like I should be scared and, um, you know, and I don't know, building some sort of place to hide out and wait it all out. Right. Well, we, we start off the whole, whole book with a chapter about embracing the future. And I think once we get our sense of time down, like once we figure that out, everything else starts to fall into place. And that's how we live differently. Because I think, Carmen, the two general options we're given in this society are progressivism and then nostalgia. And so mm. progressivism is this sense of time where everything is always getting better, or at least it better get better, or somebody's going to have to pay the price for that. It's a sense of utopia that is actually very foreign and contrary to scripture. Um, another example you get is nostalgia, the sense that everything used to be great before somebody came in and messed it up. But you see, the problem there is that in both cases, you are bound to other people's, you know, problems, other people's threats, other people's harm. You, essentially, you're bound to the news, to the news mm -hmm. cycle. And no wonder we're so anxious when we feel that way. Both of these are a lie. This is not how history works. It does not inevitably progress in some sort of clear way. As Christians, we don't believe that until, until Christ himself returns. 
And nostalgia is, it's a liar. Uh, it actually, it, it sort of smooths out history and makes it more palatable than we think that it was. So Christians who live differently, who actually live with a kind of sobriety, a, a sense of, of, of resoluteness about this time period, we're, we're, not, we're not nostalgic, we're not progressive, we're simply realistic in that sense, but also the, the, you know, the example of Christians again and again and again of how they're able to live with hope is because they know how the story ends. Not in this secular, secular utopia, not in some return to an imagined past, but the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Carmen, when you go all the way through history, you know, all the saints of the church uh, that we read about again and again and again over history, you see the same kind of hopefulness, this sense of, if my future in Christ is secure, then I can endure anything and even go so far as to live with joy. And if you can do that, you'll definitely stand out in the world because there's not nearly enough joy, especially not joy uh, that's not tied to your circumstances. Anybody can be happy because they get what they want. But the people who can be happy no matter, you know, happy in Christ, joyful in Christ, no matter what, especially in a time like this, yeah, those people, they get a lot of attention and for, for good reason. So I'm talking with Colin Hansen. Uh, he and Sarah Zalstra offer us a brand new book, Gospel Bound. Um, and we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I'm going to ask Colin to tell us the story, uh, one of the stories that's chronicled in the book, and that is the story of John and Carrie Fulmer. Um, so that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm going to invite you to visit thegospelcoalition.org. Lots of great content there. Uh, Colin Hansen serves as the vice president of content and editor, not only of the website, but of really all things Gospel Coalition. And so let me encourage you to check it out. Colin and I are talking about his new book, Gospel Bound. Um, Colin, let's uh, let's have you tell a story from the book. Um you know, there might be some stories in here that people would be familiar with, but there are definitely some that are also going to be new uh, to folks. Why don't you tell us about John and Carrie Fulmer? I love John and Carrie. Uh, I got a chance to actually stay with them almost a decade ago. I was visiting Dubai. I was teaching in a number of different uh, communities within the United Arab Emirates. And uh, John is the pastor of an international church in that area. He's uh um, his background is actually through Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And the reason we, we wrote about them in here is we gave them an, as an example of how they prioritize the things that God does. And I think our news tells us so much that what happens in politics is what's ultimate. And Carrie had really reached the pinnacle of politics. She's actually the person who wrote the, the ban on partial birth abortion that was a, that was inevitable that was eventually enacted john himself was a major player on capitol hill thought he was going into political office and god bless the people who do that but in the case of john and carrie the strong pull on their lives was after having invested so much in politics they realized that they should be investing directly in the kingdom of god instead and john was called into ministry and not only called into ministry but then called to pick up everything and go to the other side of the world and to invest in this in this church and, and take his whole life 
to this church over in in Dubai. And, uh, you know, people have not heard of John. Imagine if John had stayed in politics. He'd been a famous politician or lived some sort of high-powered life. But, you know, he's discipling people from the nations now and actually part of a, of a huge network of, of Christians throughout the Middle East who are, you know, building churches in places that you wouldn't expect. I think that's part of what we wanted to showcase in here is a lot of people don't expect that some of the most thriving churches in the world are actually in those places like the Arabian Peninsula that a lot of Christians probably listening even now don't even realize there are churches or just assume that there can't be churches in those areas. And so that's just one little example of how we see gospel-bound Christians prioritize what God does and not necessarily what the world does, but then how that stands out and actually is appealing to a world that I got to say is far too obsessed with politics, I would say, as well as somebody whose background is in politics. <laughs> right. So God is on the move um, and God's people are on the move and the spirit is on the move. We had somebody make an observation last week in our conversations about headlines out of China and Iraq, neither of which were good. Um, or Iran, excuse me, uh, neither neither of the headlines was good. Like they were, you know, definitely one of those um, uh, would would have fed your doom scrolling had you been engaged in that. Um, and this this person who, you know, he's he's commenting on the politics of it. And then he says, but, you know, from a from a Christian perspective, I have to recognize that, you know, God is up to something and that there are more Christians per capita like there's more just numbers by numbers, more Christians in China than in any other nation in the world. And the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. So even though we might have these terrible headlines that we think of in terms of geopolitics, God's up to something. I just can't see quite what it is yet. And I think that's part of what you are, um, you and Sarah are trying to get us to do is look beyond maybe what might be on the surface and press a little deeper and see what God might be doing there. Oh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, Carmen. And not every not I mean, the people listening to your show regularly, they get such a wonderfully informed perspective on the headlines and what God's doing in the world. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that we all know who don't. And I don't think Carmen how I don't think many people understand just how shaped they are by certain sources that are trying to shape them. A certain way. So I'll just give you an example. You may have seen this study recently, but people were asked how a percentage of people with COVID-19 end up in the hospital. And Democrats responded, they said 50% of people who get it end up in hospitals. Republicans said 28% end up in hospitals. The actual percentage is about 1% to 2%. This is what I mean about how shaped we are by certain media narratives from whatever perspective and how distorting it is. So now apply that to our perspective on what God is doing in the world. We think, well, gosh, this church is in collapse everywhere. Church membership numbers are declining. Uh, leaders, great leaders in the, in the church are just falling all over the place. I can't trust anyone. Well, yeah, if that's your only perspective on what's happening, then you would be discouraged. But how many churches around the world yesterday praised the risen Christ with faithful leaders and happy families. I mean, I think that's another way to put it, Carmen, is when you ask people about the state of the world, they're very discouraged. When you ask them about the state of their own community, they're often encouraged. 
We're trying to tell people, focus more on the things that you actually can control, those direct things in your life, and look to see where God's working there and find some inspiring sources from around the world as well. But focus there on what you can actually, you know, where you can actually make a difference right there, your family, your neighborhood, your church, your community, and uh, see the God, you see the power of God at work. And hopefully Sarah and I will hear your story at some point. We'll love to share it with others. Yeah, you're reminding me of just the the conversations we've had. Um, uh, I want to say the book is Kingdom Unleashed, but it's just these stories of, you know, what God is doing around the world. And it it's a good reminder. One of the things we did yesterday, Colin, as a family, in addition to participating, you know, joyfully in in-person worship um, at our local church, which was just such a blessing, um, was we just kind of looked around and um, on Facebook and YouTube to see who around the world was also worshiping. And so yeah. we sort of observed a congregation worshiping in Pakistan and oh, just imagining cool. to ourselves, you know, like, right, that's just such a completely different context there. They are raising hands to to a holy God and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We are their brothers and sisters. We're going to spend eternity with them. And we talked about the fact that we really have more in common with those brothers and sisters in Christ than we do with people who live on our own street who don't know Jesus. And, yeah. you know, we, we, may, we may vote here in politics with the people on our street, but in terms of where we're going to spend eternity, it's completely different realities. And I have a responsibility to share the gospel with my neighbors. I love the chapter on hospitality. That's really, really great. Um, and so I just, I want to commend Gospel Bound to our listeners, um, not just the book, but the life. I want to commend the mm-hmm. life of being a, a Gospel Bound Christian to our listeners today. Oh, I, I appreciate that so much, Carmen. And that's that's what we're talking about here. That's why we use the title. We think this is a lifestyle. We think this is a way that God wants us to live that's faithful to Scripture, that's in keeping with the best of Christian history. And I think, Carmen, it is the exact right topic for today as well, because we live in times where a lot of people are trying to make us feel very anxious. We do feel very anxious about the change. I know a lot of friends, especially since January, which has been a bad, it's been a hard year in general. But I think even since January, a lot of people, a lot of Christians just very discouraged. And we're hopeful that this book for those people will just be, uh, you know, a, a drink of cool water, a, a fresh breeze um, of the Spirit's work in their lives to remind them of the hope of Christ. And just what you said there, their connection with Christians around the world and to catch a glimpse of that. Sarah and I are so blessed that we get to do this for a living, and we're excited that we get to share it with others now as well. Hey, we're going to be praying for you guys. TGC 21 coming up in just a week. If you are not already registered, you can still participate virtually. Thegospelcoalition.org is where you go. Um, Colin Hansen, thank you as always for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, you're going to read a ton of headlines today. You're going to hear headlines. Let the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely lead you in your conversations today. Uh, It is Easter Monday, and so today's the day you get to say, Christ is risen, and other Christians will respond, He is risen indeed. If people don't respond in that way, what a wide open door of opportunity to recognize that you're standing with a person who either doesn't know um, or is not engaged in 
in the life of a Christian community in such a way that they sort of know that, um, that statement in response. Uh, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Glory. Hallelujah. Uh, Paul Perot tells me that in, uh, in, in Minnesota, um, there's a little bit of a different response. So, so Paul, let's do that. Yeah, Christ well, is risen. He is risen, you betcha. <laughs> What? E- either is this way. No, is this awkward or is it weird? It's a little awkward. It's, oh, a, little, it's okay. a little awkward. Hey, we um we love being with you. Thanks for taking us along. Share today's show with somebody else. Tons of great resources posted at the website, myfaithradio.com. And Spring Share starts tomorrow. So be praying for us. We are praying for you. Let us each and everyone grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. And let us grow together that we might produce a harvest of righteousness to the glory of God. To his name be praised this day and forevermore. Grace to you. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.